what that experience does, that 10-minute experience of asking the girl in the shop, hey, babe, can I get a size 14? Oh, no, we don't have it. Oh, okay. Can it, as another store have it? No, we don't do size 14. Oh, okay. So then I'm leaving the store, looking down at my belly and going, I hate you. You're, you need to lose weight. Ugh, why have you eaten so much at Christmas time? Ugh, you're a slob. Blah, 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 blah. It, it draws up all this trauma. And I don't think they realize that. It's like the rates of eating disorders and body dysmorphia are through the roof. And is, is that actually the side of history that these brands want to be on? And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the electric Denny Todorovic. You may well know Denny by their moniker, Style by Denny, a nod to their successful career as a fashion editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine and now GT Magazine, and their work as a celebrity stylist. In this chat, we talk about the moment they knew they were different when they were just a kid, to working in the magazine industry as it was slowly dying, and coming to grips with their own gender identity. Denny is without a doubt one of the most optimistic and genuine people we have ever had the pleasure of having on this show and we cannot wait for you to hear all they have to say. Here's Denny. Denny Todorovic, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so excited to have you today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. We are going to get so sweaty every time we are recording. <laughs> For the listeners, if you're wondering, we often record in the studio we're in today. We rarely, though, record in summer. It is January. It's sunny outside, and that means we will all be sweaty messes oh, yeah. by the end of this interview. It's going to be schwitzy. It's nice, it's nice and intimate, though. Nice and intimate. Hard, nice and intimate. hard to get to know each other without sweating all totally. over each other. We'll have, like, a nice sheen yeah. on our Faces yeah. will be very glowy by yeah. the end. Yeah, of this. 100%. Denny, we start every interview with the same question. That is, what were you like as a kid? So, I was incredibly fortunate in that my childhood was kind of amazing. I come from a really close, very big, loud Serbian family. So, my house was like Grand Central Station when we grew up. Everyone was always at our house. So, it's uncles, aunties, grandparents, music, food, laughter, and just like a real abundance of love. So, there was always a real sense of community and belonging. And then second to that, I was just a big performer. Like I was always the kid that was watching video hits on the weekend and dancing in the living room. And I was obsessed with anything remotely glamorous. So watching my mum get ready on a Saturday night or my cousins were dressmakers. So I was always really obsessed with fashion and glamour. And I've always idolised women and I've always, I was raised by really, really strong women. So I was just always constantly in awe of, all the women around me, all the women on television, and anything remotely shiny. Utopia. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Basically. What were your earliest memories of doing that performing and having that sort of big... Would you say you were a really bubbly sort of effervescent child? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my whole life there's been this narrative of, like, too much. I always get told that I'm a little bit too much. Um, and <laughs> I'm an Aries. I feel like that's a, a compliment now. Ah, oh, 100%. Now I totally <laughs> lean into it. You can never be too much. But, yeah, I was very much a extrovert and this very bubbly kind of... I was 
was the oldest child, so the first child, and I think by default almost kind of took the spotlight a little bit, the first grandchild in my family. So I had a lot of love and attention. So that was kind of as early as two and three. Mm. Like as soon as I could figure out that, you know, music was a thing and rhythm was a thing, I was always just very musical. I was like, okay, everyone sit down, performance coming your way. $2 for entry. <laughs> Entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial, yeah. And that's sort of like in the school holidays, I'd always gather my cousins around and I'd make them make films. Like we'd make these films that I would direct I and I would that. film them. And we still have them on videotape oh. and we watch them every Christmas. Amazing. Yeah, so I always just had this real desire to perform and create and sort of be on some form of stage. A star. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, thanks. I love that's it. That's very sweet. I love it. You are obviously unique, though. Those, like, qualities are not something that every person on the street has. Oh, when did you first realise that you had that uniqueness? Well, okay, I, I, I probably wouldn't have called it a uniqueness as a child, but I always knew that I was not like the other kids at school. I always knew that I was not definitely not like the other boys at school. I was the one who was doing the dance contents instead of like playing footy or actually, do you know what, Mish? What I remember is when I was in grade prep, we had a Christmas nativity concert and all the girls were supposed to come to the concert as angels and the boys as shepherds. And I asked my teacher, I said, I want to come as an angel. And she said, well, you can't, you're a boy. I went home crying and I said to my mum, mum, the teacher won't let me go to school as the angel. And she was like, Denny, if you want to go to school as an angel, you are going to that school as an angel. And she rounded up my aunties, and I remember specifically them like making me this little white dress, buying me a little halo and wings, and I went to the Christmas concert as this angel. I still have the picture at home. The best angel as well. I mean, it was everything. So I think from as early as that was like, what, five? Mm -hmm. I knew that I was different which I would now say, sure, that's unique. But back then it was just a feeling of difference. Mm. So I imagine then given that story, a huge part of you turning out how you are now is having the support of your family around you who are just wanting to create a real safe space for you to be whoever you want to be. Is that right? Yeah, I was incredibly lucky. Like, again, I feel like I keep saying that, but mum and dad are the greatest people I know. Mm. And we're very close in age. They had me when, when they were 21. So we've always grew up with a real like friendship at our core. So even though I was bullied my whole childhood existence and continue to be, they always had my back. So I remember as a little kid overhearing the, the aunties in my family say to my mum, you know, they're going to be gay. And my mum was just kind of like, why just because you know they're in dresses (laughs) little did she know but I always knew that she had my back regardless of what anyone else said and there was always a real sense of fierce protectiveness from her particularly Mm. and that sort of shaped the rest of my life talk to us about the bullying side of things when did that kick in and from the sounds of that comment you made it sounds like it didn't really stop no it hasn't stopped it continues constantly it started pretty much as early as kindergarten So at kindergarten, I've got a really weird photographic memory. My earliest memory is when I was two. So I remember things very viscerally. And I remember being in kinder and we had two costume rails. One was for the girls and one was for the boys. And the costumes were gendered accordingly. And I always went to the the girl costumes. And my mum came to pick me up one day and she said to my teacher, how's Denny going? And she said, Denny's doing well, but we have a little problem. They always choose the girl costumes. And that's not really supported by their classmates so maybe they should just like not choose the girl costumes anymore and again I overheard my mum saying well if Denny wants to wear those costumes 
they'll wear those costumes. So the bullying came in all forms. It came from people in authority, from teachers, from students. Yeah, to answer your question, from as early as three. Mm. From teachers too, gosh, that yeah. must be hard. Because I imagine when you're a kid, you're seeing that as a person of authority, right? That knows yeah. right from wrong or who has the rule book on yeah. everything. What was that like? Bloody awful, mate. I remember in year eight having a PE teacher who was later like fired from my school. He called me a sissy for the way that I play tennis in front of my whole class. And I will just never forget that. So when you have those moments where you have these people who you feel are supposed to be your safe space, your authority, and they actually don't support you, it's pretty gut-wrenching. But in saying that, on the flip side of that, I have the most overwhelmingly supportive teachers who I'm still friends with who just supported me because they always knew that I was different and they never pushed me or asked me, but they supported me. But for every, you know, five good teachers, there's always that one who's going to pick on you a little bit and kind of that othering really starts to begin. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever resent growing up in the mid 2000s. I mean, it was a time when a lot of these conversations weren't being had, when even gendering of clothing wasn't a discussion we were having on a mainstream stage to think, look, do we do we need to be gendering clothing? Can't we just wear what we want to wear? Do you ever resent that you grew up in that time instead of a time like now when perhaps people are more educated and less ignorant? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I often think back to the 60s to the 80s, and I look at pictures of my mum when she was like a young gal going out, right? Mm. And back in that in the 80s especially, there was this whole movement of like the new romantics and Boy George and George Michael and, you know, my dad wore makeup and my uncles wore makeup and it was just like not even a thing that people cared about. I think I, I wouldn't say I resent that decade or that era because I think it's kind of formed who I am, but I do sometimes wish that there was just a little bit more freedom. Mm. But one thing that I do really enjoy about growing up in that decade, and I know about both of you, but I, I love the fact that we grew up in a much more wholesome time without social media. Yeah. Because God, yes. if I had the bullying aspect, the social media aspect of bullying then, yeah. forget about it. Like, bullying was hard enough at school, but at least I could go home and, like, you know, watch the OC with my mum and not have to worry about what kids say after hours. Yeah, well, it's like home is a sanctuary now and I worry so much about young people. They don't have a sanctuary anymore because the bullying and all the shitty aspects of being a teenager, they're everywhere. Like, they infiltrate everything. Yeah, they don't stop. Talk to us about fashion growing up. Like, when did fashion start to play a huge role in your life? Mm. Was it always there from the youngest of ages? Yeah, so when I was three or four, three of my cousins were all dressmakers. They're all sisters and I was obsessed with them. Oh my God. (laughs) How good to have in your fam. It was amazing. So I would go over to their house and they used to have in their garage was like their studio with sewing machines and they, they worked in the rag trade. So I would always sit in their little garage and I saw from a very early age that if you had an idea and you could draw it and then you had someone to facilitate the production of that idea, you could make magic. So I would draw little outfits for them to make for my bears and dolls and things. And then when I got to a certain age, I would draw outfits for them to make for me. So I'd be going to like wedding, family weddings in like Michael Jackson's Thriller outfit or like (gasps) I was obsessed with velvet at one point and I was like, I need a blue velvet suit. And like they would just make me that blue velvet suit and I would show up to that wedding. So I, that intrinsic desire to really like self-express via fashion Mm. was as early as four. I used to, I've always dressed myself. So did you always want to have a career in fashion? Yeah. Well, I didn't actually know that fashion could be a career. I just thought it was a fantasy. So I grew up watching The Bold and the Beautiful with my grandmother. So for those who don't know, The Bold and the Beautiful centres around these two families who are like dynasties and they have fashion labels, the Foresters and something else. I can't remember the other family. So anyway, 
I actually didn't uh, know that. Did you? So I mean, the- I have watched that many episodes and I had no I idea did, it was I'd about two fashion on that much. Yeah. So it was the House of Spectra <laughs> and the Foresters. And so I watched that every afternoon and I was like, oh, okay, fashion. And then I remember in the 90s, do you remember, I don't know if you remember on Fox, there used to be a channel called Fashion TV. Yes. Yeah. So I would go around. It was to, always playing in Supray. Yes. Yes, literally. So I'd go around to my auntie's house because she was the only one who had Foxtel and I'd make her put Fashion TV on for me. And I was just like, whoa, like, what is this world? But I didn't think it could be a job. So I was actually going to be a hairdresser because I was like, that's kind of the next most close thing. And then when I was 16, I watched a documentary on the SBS with a designer who I love. It was a whole series, actually. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Like, Mm. that's actually a job that people get paid for. Sick. (laughs) So you worked in magazines. You worked your way up from intern to video producer to fashion stylist to fashion editor. Talk to us about working in fashion and mags in the time that you did because you worked in a really interesting time. Mm. So I was really, really... I keep using the word lucky. I'm going to say blessed instead. So when I, yeah. <laughs> Let's just have it like let's a dictionary of synonyms, synonyms in front yeah. of us. So I moved to London when I was 22 and magazines were actually something I discovered from as early as 11 and was just so enamoured by them. And I love writing and, and sort of journalism and reading. So I was always obsessed with with magazines. But again, I didn't really know what that world looked like or how you'd even get a job in mags. So when I moved to London, I started working in marketing and PR. And that's when I started to piece the puzzle together. I was like, oh, there's these people who contact the journalists and then they then do the photo shoots. Oh, okay. And then I was like, actually, no, I want to be on the other side. So my boss at the time said, well, quit PR, go get an internship in mags. So I spent about six months interning in London and got to intern at British Vogue, which was just like mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. And then when I came home, I was like, okay, you need to do this in Australia. And at the time, it was like the time of the blogger. Everyone had a blog and I started a blog, but it just wasn't really fulfilling me. So I moved to Sydney and started from scratch interning again. And I had interned at Cosmo in the UK. So Cosmo was really high on my list and I interned at Cosmo for six months and then got a job there in video, which was not not what I wanted necessarily, but they knew I could edit videos because my blog was video-based. Yeah. And Bronwyn McCann, who gave me my job literally in the job interview, which was just such a surreal moment, was so exceptional at mentoring me and leading me. She, she could see us from the job interview what my end goal was. So she really kind of nurtured me in a really beautiful way. And I just feel so lucky because... You know, people, I guess they link fashion magazines to like the Devil Wears Prada or the September issue, which some of it is for sure accurate and very much like that. But I was lucky in that I worked in what we used to call the Disneyland of mags. Cosmo was a very safe family-like environment. So there was really not a lot of bitching or bullying or, you know, a sort of fat shaming or like label shaming. That was not our environment at all. So I was super lucky. I just got to go to work every day for five years and create and be inspired and have conversations and and be part of this legacy, this global legacy. You know, everyone knows Cosmo. It's like the magazine that your Uber driver knows or, you know, the baker knows. (laughs) And it was just really beautiful to be a part of that. It's sad, though, because, I mean, you speak about this with nostalgia because Cosmo did shut down. I mean, there was a mass exodus of magazines across the country Mm. and you lost your job in that mass exodus. Can you talk to us about that time? I mean, we weren't directly in magazines, but we were in digital media when this was all happening. Mm. And looking on, it just felt like a sinking ship that people were trying to jump off as quickly as they could because everyone could see that things were about to turn really sour. Yeah. It was really hard. When I look back at that time, I remember for the last my last year at Cosmo, 
the writing was on the wall and sort of contrary to the Devil Wears Prada aesthetic, you all worked very closely. So there was like three magazines and we all worked on the same level and budgets were being slashed left, right and centre. People were being made redundant left, right and centre. Our circulation was dropping every month. So we knew what was coming. But what was so heartbreaking was that you know, we put our blood, sweat and tears into that job. It's like you would, I was at my desk at 7am and I left it at, you know, 9pm sometimes for almost every day. And I did it because I loved it. You don't get paid a lot in magazines. If, If anyone thinks it's because of the money, there is no money in magazines. You're there because you love what you do. So then to come in, I still remember that day so clearly. We had an all-staff meeting pop up in our calendar that morning, which is never a good sign. Oh, it's never a good sign. What's the vibe like after that email? I remember I had a meeting that morning, like a showroom appointment, and my editor messaged me and said, uh, you need to come in instead of going to the appointment. And I said, oh, okay. So I messaged my assistant and I said, babe, can you just go down to the showroom for this showing thing? And she's like, no, no, there's an all-staff meeting in our calendar. And I was like, you're joking. But at that point, I was like, maybe they're just getting rid of fashion. Like maybe they're just chopping certain sections. Like they're not going to get rid of Cosmo. It's like an institution. And then 45 minutes later, we're all sitting in this boardroom at this table. And we were really lucky because our editor told us first and we all just sobbed. We all just sobbed. And then our publisher came. She told us. We cried some more. And then she said, it's 10.30. You should probably all go to the pub. And that's what we did. Wow. She was. She handled it with such empathy because it's not a nice thing to go through. No one wants to go through it. And of course, you have all these questions. And for me, it was actually more so a part of my identity because I had moved to Sydney five years prior And Sydney was like a real coming of age moment for me. And I went through really tremendous breakups and trauma and lots of self-discovery. But Cosmo was my family. When I was going through my massive breakup in Sydney, I used to go into Cosmo on the weekend just to sit on the couch because it felt like my home. So then I was like, wait, you're, you're killing my home? Like, what do you mean? And it was just a huge part of my identity. Like, I was Denny from Cosmo for five years. Mm. And then suddenly I wasn't. It was really scary. It's really interesting because I think my natural follow-up to a conversation in this would be about your identity with your job, but for you it was with your identity with the magazine. Like, do you think that the shutting of that magazine had a bigger impact than losing your job? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. People say that if you, when you work in publishing or journalism, like if you're not made redundant three times, you're not doing it right. So <laughs> being, being made redundant is part of part and parcel of working in a creative field. I've lost jobs plenty of times, but it was so much more than a job. It was, it was a legacy. It was a family. It was... Yeah, and and being part of Cosmo, it just meant so much to me and to so many others. And to our readers, that was the other thing. I remember sitting there the day of the announcement being like, what's our reader going to do? Like, that was my safe space. Like, Mm -hmm. I couldn't Google, I think I might be gay. The first time I ever saw a dick in a magazine was in the sealed section of Cosmo in Year 9 art class. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I might be gay. Like, (laughs) like, what about that poor kid that's not going to have that experience now? Like, so it's so layered. It's such a lay. It was such a layered loss. And it took me a good year to work through that loss. And I think it's still something that none of us will ever really, truly get over. When I watched The Bold Type, oh, my God, it's so triggering. Like, it makes me so sad because... It was just such a special time in my life. Mm. What do you do? So you go to the pub that day Mm. and you, like, drink your sorrows Mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. But after that, like, how do you pick up the pieces? You said it took you a year. What did that Mm. year look like? So for me, I'm generally a very optimistic kind of rose-coloured glasses kind of human. But in that moment, I wanted to be very, like, pragmatic and quite just serious and grown up about it. And I was like, okay, let's look at the positives. You've got a pretty good payout. I called my mum. I said, mum, we're going to New York for 10 days. (laughs) Because why not? Life's too short. 
Uh, we went to New York, had a great old time, spent half of my payout. And while we were there, I was like, okay, I think you need to go home, Denny. And you need to go home to Geelong because Sydney was incredibly toxic for me in many ways. And in Sydney, I really, that was my sort of navigating the queer world sort of moment. And that came with lots of great things, but lots of really, really shitty things, and particularly a very toxic relationship towards the end of that chapter. And I remember just sitting in New York with my mum and I was like, I need to be near her because I haven't been near her for 10 years. All my 20s were spent living abroad to some capacity and I just need to go home, regroup for three months, and then I'll plan the next step. And that three months turned into a year of like a homecoming in so many ways. This like coming home to Geelong, which is, you know, a regional town for mo- in the most part was so scary and yet everyone seemed to welcome me and I was like okay this is not so bad I was like what will my queer life look like in Geelong it was amazing you know what will people think of the way I dress it was very well received like what will my career look like suddenly it's like there's no stylist in Geelong so I was getting I was booked and busy <laughs> you know it was like job after job after job and I was like oh who thought coming to Geelong would be the greatest thing that ever could have happened to me hmm. you know in some ways, do you look back on Cosmo shouting as much as that rocked you? Mm. Was losing that job a blessing in disguise? Absolutely. It was It was a blessing in disguise in so many ways because I think often we place so much value on status and sort of labels and, you know, I work at Cosmo and I've made it and I've made it because I work for this thing. But actually, if you strip all of those labels and the job titles away, who are you at your core? And leaving Cosmo really gave me time to sit and think about, like, who is Denny actually at their core? It's time for you to shine now, darling, without that Cosmo above you. Like, it took me ages to take out former fashion editor of Cosmo in my Instagram bio because everyone was like, no, you need to have that in there because people aren't going to book you if they don't know that you did that. So then suddenly it's about your self-worth and your value as, like, a professional and as a person. And you're like, I don't need that anymore. I'm my own person now. Coming up after the break, why Denny chooses to live a life of radical positivity. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Your career did flourish heaps after Cosmo, but I wanted to ask you specifically about last year when COVID-19 struck. I mean, we read an interview with you this morning when you chatted to The Latch, I think it was, and you gave this quote where you said, for the first time in my life, I had to apply for Centrelic. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I've worked since I was 14 and nine months. I've never had to claim that. And it was a very stressful process. When the pandemic struck, what was going through your head when it came to the creative industries? It was frightening like for any, for everyone for so many of your listeners I'm sure will feel the same for me it was really interesting I was saying to my best friend last night in that moment you're suddenly like okay I'm not an essential worker like what I do is actually not essential it's quite superfluous and it's quite a, it's a creative endeavor what does this look like now like how where's my next paycheck coming from applying for Centrelink is amazing. Like Centrelink and what the government has has done for us and so many Australians has been exceptional when you compare it globally. So I'm so grateful for that. But it was this real moment of like, I've had three jobs pretty much my whole life. I've always been like a hyphenated kind of job person. So I was like, oh wait, what am I without my job? Like what is my identity without that job? Yeah. But the beauty in that moment was that 
towards the end of 2019, I could feel a disconnect between myself and styling. And I was like, I don't think you're really a stylist anymore, Denny. Like, you've done all that you can do. You were the fashion editor of the biggest magazine in the world. I don't really need to style someone for the Logies. Like, that's not really filling my soul anymore. Like, what what fills your cup? What fills your soul? So COVID also, for me, was like the biggest blessing in disguise. And at the start of lockdown... I set this intention because I'm like super spiritual and do like intentioning and manifesting and all that jazz. And I set this intention and I said, I want to reconnect with your 17-year-old self, the one who just sat in their sewing room every weekend and sewed and created and was like passionate. And that's exactly what I did. And I wouldn't have had that time had we not have all gone into lockdown. Mm. Mm. I feel like one element of your career that has really flourished and thrived over the last 12 months is speaking about body positivity and body acceptance. Mm. I want to speak to you about that. I mean, you're coming from fashion and I feel like it's such an interesting hybrid to come from a fashion background where so many fashion labels are so discriminatory against fat women or women who exist in bigger bodies and all people who exist in bigger Mm. bodies. How do you feel about, I guess, your role in the fashion industry and magazines in particular and now looking in 2021 at our fat acceptance and our fat positive world? It's a really interesting one because I was actually talking about this just last week because of an experience I had in a store that didn't sell bigger than a size 12 Mm. and I wear a a women's size 14 or a large Mm. and I've had my own sort of body issues ever since I was probably 17 and so now it's like well I'm going to use my voice to actually hold my industry accountable because I don't I'm not too concerned about burning bridges with a brand I'm just going to call them out size 12 is not good enough mate like pick up your game the average size of the Australian woman is a 14 and has been for the last five years. So what you're doing is sizest, it's exclusionary, and it's actually just bloody unacceptable. Mm. So pull your socks up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> How did a lot of this messaging, like in particular the experience you had when you were in that store, mm. affect your own relationship with your body? It's horrible because... And I actually sent them an email last week and I said to them in the email, what that experience does, that 10-minute experience of asking the girl in the shop, hey, babe, can I get a size 14? Oh, no, we don't have it. Oh, okay. Can it, does another store have it? No, we don't do size 14. Oh, okay. So then I'm leaving the store, looking down at my belly and going, I hate you. You're, you need to lose weight. Ugh, why have you eaten so much at Christmas time? Ugh, you're a slob. Blah, 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 blah. It it's draws up all this trauma. And I don't think they realise that. It's like the rates of eating disorders and body dysmorphia are through the roof. And is is that actually the side of history that these brands want to be on? What what do they want their legacy to be? What How do they want to make Australian humans feel? Mm. You want to feel good. Fashion at its core should be about self-expression and joy and love. And I don't want to walk into a shop and not feel like I can't express myself because of a number. Mm. Like that's not my worth. Did they reply? Worth. Not yet. They haven't <laughs> responded. No. So they responded to me on Instagram initially and they actually passed along their sort of retail team's email addresses, but I've not heard back. But I'll let your listeners know if I do. It feels like gatekeeping, doesn't mm, it? It, it feels does. like, oh, well, we're a fashion house mm. and we want a certain aesthetic and we are going to gatekeep this from anyone who doesn't fit that aesthetic. It just feels like so many women are being shut out mm-hmm. from something that a world that's so creative and so fun that they should be welcomed into. Absolutely. And I think for a very long time, fashion has had a very elitist air to it. And 
you know, you look at films like The Devil Wears Prada or the September issue and you feel like you can't belong in that group because you're not, you don't look a certain way, you don't present a certain way, you don't have that much money, etc. So I think that what they're doing is absolutely excluding and that's their intent mm. and that's what's really sad mm. because it's not... It's not like, oh, we don't make up to a size 14. It's like, no, you don't want size 14 women wearing your clothes on the street. You're not welcome in Correct. Now. We don't want Which you. is not like, we're done with that. It's also, sorry, fucking stupid. You don't want my money. Like, exactly. you don't want my money. I'm not going to help your business. If the average woman wants to buy your T-shirt, she yep. can't, you're going to turn away those dollars. In, in an industry where it's struggling financially Exactly already. right. In a, in a world where, like, you know, especially particularly after COVID or sort of, you know, after lockdown, I really wanted to go and support Aussie labels. Yeah. So I walking to this shop and I'm like, help me, help, help you. Me, help you, girl. And like, you know, I could like, it was like one of those like Julia Roberts, like pretty woman moments where I was like, this is a big fucking mistake, mate, because I could have dropped two grand in here and I didn't because you don't allow me to and you don't welcome me. And that's on you, mate. Like, no wonder, like, you know, Aussie labels are shutting left, right and centre. And it's like, maybe you need to have a little, a little strong, hard look at yourself because, you know, Bring the party to everyone else and the money will just continue to roll on in, <laughs> sugar. And then you can keep making more stuff in bigger sizes. Denny, where along this journey did you realise that your gender identity didn't necessarily fit into a binary? Mm. So it's really interesting because I knew I was gay from as early as four. You reckon four? Yeah, I was four. I remember I had a crush on Dylan in nine two. <laughs> shout out to Dylan. Yeah, shout okay. out to Dylan. And so that was like a very early thing. I knew I wasn't a boy from as early as, like, three. That was a real intrinsic feeling that I knew I wasn't a boy, but I also knew I wasn't a girl. But I never had the language to to even piece that thought process together. And then, I guess, in amongst fashion, it's always been really prominent because when I was in high school, I would make dresses in textiles class and then I would close the door in my bedroom and try them on, like, so that I could just, like see what they felt like and swish around in them. When I was like five years old, I would wear my mum's bridesmaids dresses and just like relish being in that, in that moment. But I knew that it was wrong. I knew that it was not accepted by society, certainly by my culture. And that was really scary. So it wasn't until I think I was at, it was my last year in Cosmo and I read an article somewhere about Nico Tortorella, who's an actor on Younger. And I heard the term non-binary for the first time and I was like, hmm, what is this? And in my last year at Cosmo, we did a massive pride campaign and we got an email from someone and they had they, them in their email signature. And I was like, huh, what's that? But it still didn't really jerry to me. And at that time, I was really going through a bit of an evolution in that the relationship I was in for all its toxicity, was actually incredible because it opened my eyes to a world of beautiful queer people who wear whatever they want regardless of their gender. And I was like, this is amazing. And so I started slowly dabbling, slowly dabbling. And then when I came home to Geelong, the the sort of the penny drop or mic drop moment for me was Sam Smith. When Sam Smith came out as non-binary and they released a music video to a song called How Do You Sleep?, I was just blown away. I was like, wait a second. Here is a representation of who I am and who I've always been on the inside my whole life, and I've never seen this before, and that that is me. So I'm going to just lean into that. So I lent into it and lent into it without labelling myself as non-binary, without telling anyone. But in my mind, I was like, you're just going to lean into this. And then three months before lockdown, I met a non-binary person for the first time in my life. And when they started speaking about their experience... I was like fighting back tears because they were speaking a truth I could never articulate. And it just felt like this massive exhale moment. I was like, oh, shit, you're non-binary, honey. 
okay, let's unpack that, you know? Mm. But the two were, like, linked my whole life. The fashion and my gender identity were linked my whole life. Mm. It's so interesting because the role that Sam Smith played for you is probably the role that you're now going to play for other people because you have this incredible platform and you have shared your story and been so generous in sharing it as well. How did you go in the early days, though, telling the people around you, particularly maybe from older generations or different cultural backgrounds, how was it received when you said, hey, I'm changing my pronouns and this is who I've always been and I want to start having everyone around me mirror that back? It was really, really hard. It was actually harder than coming out as gay because I think you know, people at least, and my family certainly, had a reference point for gay. My mum loved Will and Grace, for example. So when I came out as gay, that was really hard. But she was kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, we have Will and Grace, we have Elton John, you know, Freddie Mercury. There was a reference point. The only reference point they had to any kind of gender diversity was Caitlyn Jenner. So at the start, everyone was like, oh, wait, are you trans? Like, are you transitioning? So there was no, like, they're like, what's non-binary? We don't know what you're talking about. So I told, the first person I told was my best friend, Riley, at Mardi Gras. It was like the night before the Mardi Gras parade. And I said, Riley, I think I am non-binary. And then I said, no, actually, I know I am. And I think I'd like you to start using they, them pronouns. How do you feel about that? And Riley just looked at me and said, Den, I'll love you regardless, but I just want you to make sure that you are like a thousand percent sure in that feeling. We really like unpack our emotions a lot, he and I. So (laughs) he's like, come on, let's unpack this. Just like think about this. I'm really glad you've told me. I will be here to hold space for that. And then I came in from Mardi Gras and I started to tell maybe three of my closest friends. And we were like, okay, this is the thing. This is our sort of secret. Let's just like feel it out. And then I was like, no, this is me. I need to tell my parents. And when I told my parents, it was incredibly difficult. My mum really, really struggled because I think for my mum particularly, it's like losing a child. Like, it's like losing her son. So in her mind, she felt like she was losing her son. You know, like, oh, you're not my son anymore. Are you going to change your name? It was just so confusing to her. And I think if I actually told them that I wanted to transition, they would have been much easier about that Mm -hmm. because it was a bit more linear to them. And the pronoun thing came a little bit later because I was quite against changing my pronouns because I still had quite a lot of internal trauma around masculinity. And I was like, well, just because I'm non-binary, I'm, I can still be a he. Like, I'm, I'm man enough because toxic masculinity has informed my whole life. So the pronoun change came about three or four weeks later and everyone was just incredible. So much more than I could have even imagined. My parents still struggle with it and, you know, just being Serbian and ethnic and English isn't their first language. My extended family still struggle with it, but I'm just incredibly patient with them and I don't blame them. And I've said to my mum many times, I'm still your son. I'm still my brother's brother. My niece will call me uncle. Those things to me are roles. They're not a gender mm. and those things don't need to change. But the pronoun thing is really, really important to me and just being respected and valued has been crucial to my own self-worth and and having that overflow of love and support from everyone on Instagram, it's just never lost on me. It, It means so, so much to me. What has it felt like? Has it felt like a weight has lifted or is that a bit too simplistic? Oh, babes, no, no. That is spot on. It is literally like an exhale moment because for me... The the questioning and the, the resistance from my family and friends mainly came from the way that I presented. So I very quickly realised that if I was going out to a bar or a club in a pair of heels and, you know, face full of makeup, that was accepted because it was kind of like it's night time. It was almost a bit performative. But if I showed up to my parents' cafe for brekkie on a Saturday in a pair of heels, 
everyone was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, are you a woman now? That was the real catalyst. In lockdown, I would come outside to do my dance videos and my mum would be like, what are you wearing? Like, why are you wearing that? I'm so confused. So once I came out as non-binary, I was just like, praise be. I can just be me now. I can go anywhere I want wearing anything I want because I've allowed myself that freedom. This month on Instagram, you wrote something that was really powerful. You wrote, the Australian government has announced it will, for the first time ever, include a non-binary option on the census. An option that in one fell swoop makes the trans non-binary community feel seen, valued and equal to our cis siblings. A feeling that is often seldom felt. How do you feel about the future when it comes to non-binary acceptance, trans acceptance, and I guess compassion from the average Mm. SIDS person? I feel really hopeful. Like I genuinely do because the, the willingness and eagerness for people to want to learn and want to do better and the messages I get, I would say 90% of my audience are women and a very good chunk of them are mums. And the messages I get from those mums on a daily basis of thank you so much because now I understand pronouns and my kids have trans friends or, you know, my kids may be trans. And, you know, so it's like holding space for these conversations is essentially cultivating a a much more equal and fair society so that when my niece grows up, she can live in a world that allows her to be whatever she is. And I I do have hope. And when the Australian government makes a stand like that, it's like when same-sex marriage was approved. It's exactly the same feeling. You're like, I'm validated. I'm seen. I matter. Mm. Like, I'm a valued member of the Australian community. So I am hopeful. I think we have, like, leaps and bounds to go, but I think we're making some pretty great... Steps in heels, as we go, you know? <laughs> in big heels, heels, yeah. Danny, you strike me as a ridiculously positive person. Like in every theme or topic that we've brought up today, you've sort of always ended it on a high or sort of pulled out something positive or optimistic about it. Why do you think that is? Oh, darling, I wish I had the exact answer for you. I think it's a combination of things. I think as a queer person, you as a child... Well, for me, I can only speak for myself, but it's a common thread in our community. You become very obsessed with fantasy and this idea of somewhere over the rainbow. So The Wizard of Oz is one of my favourite films. Or The Little Mermaid is actually, apparently there was like these studies done in that The Little Mermaid is every like gay person's favourite cartoon as a kid because it's like this beautiful message of you're an outsider and then suddenly you're accepted and you have this happy ending. So all of those subliminal messages growing up really shaped me to believe that everything's going to be fine. I'm going to get over the rainbow and, you know, we'll get out of the Emerald City. We'll get to the Emerald City and everything's going to be cute. I'll do it in my little sparkly shoes and it's fine. (laughs) But I think that actually as I've grown up, it's just become such a huge part of my DNA and such a huge part of my daily life that it's sort of like the air I breathe. But in saying that, it's also something that's been held against me my whole life. So in relationships or even in friendship groups, sometimes it's like, you know, like, why are you so positive? You're you're not a realist. What's wrong with you? Stop being a dreamer. I used to get that a lot. Stop being a dreamer. You're such a dreamer. And I was like, well, what's the alternative? Life is hard. Life is very hard. But if you have a a positive disposition to life, it just kind of makes the ride a little easier. But in saying that, I don't ever want to give that falsified image of myself as this, like, you know, glitter coming out of my bum kind of person. I have really struggled this year with with anxiety and my mental health and 
it's probably the first time, well, sorry, the last 12 months is probably the first time I've been depressed since I came out. So I think we've seen traditionally that often the the shiniest people are the ones who are hurting the most inside. And I often feel that real duality to my own personality. Mm. Mm. How are you going with the mental health stuff? It's been a rocky 12 Mm. months for a lot of us. How Mm. are you kind of finding sources of happiness right now? Yeah, it's a daily... It's a daily struggle if I'm – uh, let's not say struggle. It's a daily journey, to be completely honest with you. I really discovered, I guess, last year a new level of spirituality to myself and how much I use that as a tool to kind of navigate my way through life. And I also discovered last year just how much of an empath I am. So, you know, empathy is something that we all have, but when you deeply, like, have this kind of empath sensibility, you feel everything and that's really hard during a global pandemic so I really rely a lot on things like meditation and I'm not going to sit here and say I meditate every single day because I don't but when I when I feel the need to really go inward I go inward I will sit I will carve out that time it can be as simple as and I have to say this and, and say a massive thank you to both of you like listening to a podcast like your show got me through so much gloom during lockdown and it's like putting my dog on the lead popping you gals in my ear coffee in hand, you just instantly take yourself out of that dark cloud. My family is a huge one for me. There is nothing I enjoy more than just being on the couch in my PJs with mum, with a tub of ice cream, watching reality (laughs) television. It sparks so much joy. Um, And then also I will say that this sort of beautiful little gift we have in our hands, like sharing these stories on Instagram and just on, on social media in general have been so beautiful because it's like you suddenly feel more seen and you feel less alone and you realize actually we're all going through this and how beautiful that this pandemic has made us like check up on each other and and do weekly check-ins with our friends about their mental health when we never would have done that before Mm. i want to know if people were sitting around talking about you what would you want them to say about you well i think what i would really like people to say about me has nothing to do with anything surface level it's, it's a feeling, so I hope that people remember the way that I make them feel. And I hope that people say, you know, they, they made me feel good or they made me feel like I could navigate my way through this life a little bit easier or with a little bit more self-awareness or with a bit more education or even if it is as simple as a silly 60-second dance video, if that's made your day and that's made you feel a little bit lighter... That's my 2021 word, light. We all need light this year. Mm-hmm. So if I can if I can spark light and join people, that's what I would like them to talk say about me when I'm not there. Mm. I mean, it might be a similar answer, but our final question to every interview we do mm. is how do you define success? Yeah, so I was actually talking to my bestie about this last night. I think for a very long time, humans have defined success numerically. You know, how much money is in your bank account or how many followers do you have or, you know, silly numbers. For me, true success is peace, like a sense of Mm. internal peace and a sense of real radical self-love. And what I mean by that is like waking up every day and looking in that mirror and saying, Danny, darling, I love you, mate. And we're going to get through this and I've got you and you've got me and it's all good. And and, and that can look differently in different stages of your life. And self-love is a journey and peace is a journey. But when you have that real internal peace, I think that's success to me. 
Danny, thank you so much. It seems very fitting that your 2021 word is light because I feel like this has just been a huge light in my day and I know it will be in so many others. Oh, so I'm in love with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's been such a privilege to be here. Thank you. Mm, we're so grateful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shameless with the sunshiny Denny Todorovich. If you want more from Denny, and of course you do, you can follow them on Instagram at stylebydenny. As for us, we are over on Instagram at shamelesspodcast, but another way to support our show is to actually recommend it to someone you love. You can text this episode to a friend or in your group chat or even just tell a colleague about it on your lunch break at work today. And as always, don't forget to subscribe on Apple or click follow on Spotify. That's all from us, guys. Have a great day and a great week. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday with the Shameless Pop Culture Wrap. Bye.